You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Brandon Blewett. And I'm Deke Hager. This is WFHB Local News for Monday, August 28th. 2023. Later in the program, local journalist Dave Askins of the B-Square Bulletin provides a report on musician Molly Tuttle's performance last week at Switchyard Park. More in today's feature report. In particular, we're dealing with invasive plant species. Our team aims to get the community involved caring for the parks as a part of our ecosystem. Kelly Schofield, urban green space specialist with the city of Bloomington, bringing neighbors together to care for our parks and natural habitats. Kelly can connect you to volunteer opportunities protecting Bloomington's green space later on the show on an episode of Activate, but first, your daily headlines. During public comment at the board meeting of the Monroe County Community School Corporation, concerned parents and teachers shared their reactions to the passage of House Bill 1608 in the Indiana State House. The new law requires schools to notify parents about a student's name or pronoun change. A student from Kaleidoscope Youth Community, a youth-led organization serving the LGBTQIA community, shared their concerns about the bill. As you can tell, I'm also here with Kaleidoscope Youth Community. I'm a senior in the MCCSC system. And today I'm going by the name Possum. Um, the day before the first day of school, I caught wind of HP 1608. At first I wondered if I should comply maliciously by changing my name every day, but immediately after having that thought, I realized the extra load that it would put on my teachers. I talked to others about it and I realized the school board should be the ones um, fighting for us students. I shouldn't have to fight for the right to my name, nor should my teachers have to. By resisting this law, you not only have the chance to influence schools, you have the chance to influence the attitudes of youth in the greater community. You have the chance to influence my attitude as I graduate from the MCCSC system this next summer, and you have the chance to influence how the students younger than me will feel about the safety of the MCCSC community moving forward. You have the chance to take the lead in speaking for and representing us as a community. Thank you. Thank you. A representative from Kaleidoscope Youth also urged the school board to protect its youth in light of recent legislation. Greetings. I'm using the name Skunk in solidarity with youth members of Kaleidoscope and in opposition to a law that does not give youth the contextualized right to decide how they should be known. The youth themselves are best equipped to decide when and with whom they share information about themselves. The mandate of HB 1608 establishes that there is a problem between parents and schools, kids and teachers. It's not the case in general the schools are keeping it's not the case that in general schools are keeping information from parents. It's not the case that teachers and students are in opposition to one another. We cannot hit respecting our students and caring about their well-being against a perceived sense of parental and child protection. Such mandates position schools, teachers, and educators to model, reproduce, and promote bullying for a group of youth that are already marginalized and relatively unsafe in schools. 
It's harmful to refuse students the right to name themselves in classes and harmless to let them do so without informing their parents. The potential for harm is not being accurately assumed through this mandate and others like it. I urge MCCSC to file a lawsuit against the state. Any other response in support of students is only first aid, necessary but insufficient. I have thoughts on that first aid and I'm really happy to share them. I have a whole list, but I think I'll get the ding ding if I start going through it. Um, so lastly, I just wanna say that we must be careful not to assume that youth in our district would not face repercussions for having their names and pronouns reported to parents or would not suffer if their correct pronouns were treated as wrong. Outing kids both in school and out without them choosing when and how, without them being prepared for this, and without important supports in place is cruel and unethical. We cannot be both for our LGBTQ plus youth and for this law. Then, Superintendent Dr. Jeff Hauswald delivered his report, providing an update on the school system's anti-racism policy. Um, I did want to mention that the Student Equity Ambassadors had a summer leadership academy. It concluded on August 17th. Uh, the Student Leadership Academy was really the first of its kind. It consisted of three full days, um, two which took place in the summer, one which concluded just this past week. I know on Thursday I had an opportunity to come over and, and speak to the students and to the Midwest Equity staff. Uh, and it was aimed at preparing 30 high school students, teacher representatives, and members of the district's equity project team, their work throughout the school year. Um, the participants learned how to uh, recognize and prevent microaggressions, but they also worked on what's called youth participatory action research. So YPAR, and I know board, you'll see sort of a timeline that's going to update you on this in the upcoming year. You'll see YPAR listed on there. That's the youth participatory action research. So it's really just youth led action research to affect change related to our anti-racism policy 5518. And it focuses on addressing issues affecting our schools. The students are getting ready to conduct research, conduct uh, data analysis, to propose student-centered strategies. Again, I'll repeat that, student-centered strategies will enhance the school community related to our policies goals. We expect many positive contributions to continue to come from our student equity ambassadors uh, as we work towards addressing the, addressing the important issues related to racism and, 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 and bias in all of its forms in our community and throughout the school year. A timeline for this work, more information is on our website. As you know, our board passed an LGBTQIA plus uh, resolution uh, related to the um, working hard to eradicate and, and remove uh, bullying and harassment that takes place um, for our LGBTQIA plus uh, community. A special thank you to um, the, the community organizations, to the student left um, that, that spoke tonight and really continue to speak passionately for that. I know the next step related to that resolution is we work to create a parallel policy um, addressing the needs of our LGBTQIA plus uh, community is a uh, convening of many of our community organizations, our student voices, to make sure that we come back to the board and, and provide a robust policy. And then with that, the educational materials necessary, the action research to, to make sure that we continue to provide an inclusive environment for all of our students. The MCCSC school board will convene again for its monthly meeting on Tuesday, September 26th. During the August 21st meeting of the Bloomington Redevelopment Commission, officials heard a resolution for an impact analysis of the Bloomington Certified Technology Park with the IU Public Policy Institute. Interim Director and Assistant Director for the Arts, Holly Warren, presented the proposal. 
So again, I'm Holly. I'm the Interim Director of Economic and Sustainable Development. Um, so in order to retain our technology park certification, we have to submit an application for recertification. Part of that application includes a third-party impact study of the park that covers from 2019 up to the present. We're proposing to contract with IU's Public Policy Institute to do this third-party work, and we're asking you to approve that contract today. A draft of that contract is in your packets. The study overall would cost $49,825. Um, IU's PPI will finish their report, of course, in advance of this application deadline. We acknowledge that that is a very quick turnaround time. When we were told about this process, we were not anticipating that the initial deadline was going to be September. 29th. So we're trying to get this done fast. But I also do want to share that Dee and our colleagues over at the Public Policy Institute have worked with IEDC to give us a two-week extension on the contract. So the entire application will not be due now until October 13th. So that is a good thing, but we are very much wanting to expedite the process for this third-party analysis to take place so we can make sure that we make that deadline and qualify for this potential increase of funds. Commission members discussed the history of this kind of work, noting that it's unprecedented because this is the first year that an impact study has been required. I have a question. Um, who's done this work for us historically and what's been the average cost? There has not been specifically this work done. This is the first year that the IEDC has required a third-party impact study. Um, I uh, asked several different firms for quotes um, because uh, 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 PPI has done um, similar studies for us, specifically in the trades district. Uh, they were kind of like the, the the one we kind of wanted to go with because they're pretty familiar with, with what's going on and, and kind of the players that are already... Um, part of it. And they honestly did have the best price when it came down to it. Um, so uh, I would say if if we had a full staff, like if I had 10 people under me, the cost of this would be much less, um, basically because it, it will be myself and an intern and a few people in my department. We had to ask a lot of, um, of IU uh, for this uh, study to get it done um, on time. Uh, had I had the year that I thought I was going to have to do this application, um, probably wouldn't have to be asking so much of them. But it, it's more of a manpower issue than anything, um, or a person power issue, I should say, um, to get this done. Commission member Deb Hutton asked if the impact analysis would be an annual requirement Assistant Director for Small Business Development, Andrea De La Rosa, responded that it will happen every four years. Do we have a sense of ongoing? Is this going to be an annual requirement? No. So once, uh, this is every four years. Okay. So uh, we apply for this every four years. Uh, once it's approval, we get uh, 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 $250,000 per year. So essentially the cost of this, the 49000 is worth the two million will, or the worth the million that we'll have, you know, uh, over the course of the four years. Uh, now, I don't know if IEDC is going to require this every time. What it sounds like is that it probably will be something that's required. Um, we, uh, I'm in the process of trying to get us all on a call with our um, IEDC rep uh, just to get some clarification on a few things. Like we said, it was very much sprung on all of us. And I have a feeling that we're probably not the only city that's going to be asking for an extension at this point in time. 
Um, but uh, the feeling that I got from them is that they want to get all of this settled before the new year. And it's pretty late in the year to start. So this will be a one-time, perhaps every four years type of exercise. I really don't think that we're going to be pressed for time like this for the next time because we'll be ready for it <laughs> by any <laughs> we'll means. You the, know. We'll have learned a lot. Yeah, we'll have the wherewithal. And built. this also kind of puts ESD in a position where it's like, we're, we just need to keep up on this. So when this does get sprung on us the next time, a lot of this work can, can already be done. So it's just, you know, the impact study and, and getting some things so... I think that a yearly assessment of the uh, CTP on our part would be the best course of action. Um, I don't know how to do that with the limited staff that I have, um, but it's something to definitely look into. Commissioner Sarah Bowerly-Dansman said that she appreciates that the commission is working with Indiana University on the impact analysis. Well, I really, for one, um, love the fact that we're using IU um, for this. Um, so I think that that's a really positive thing. Um, it adds also to my understanding of um, the um, of the center um, that we that we would be contracting with. Um, is that I think that they also use some. Uh, there, there's a kind of pedagogical value to it as well that I think is really um, fantastic. And since you said that you asked for multiple bids and that this was far lower, I think that that can um, allay some of my concerns. The commission approved the resolution unanimously. The Bloomington Redevelopment Commission will meet again on September 5th. Up next, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. KiteLine airs each Friday at 5.30 p.m. on WFHB. The program is also available online at wfhb.org or wherever you get your podcasts. At about 12.30 a.m. on July 3rd, two teenagers at Hogan Street Regional Youth Center in St. Louis, Missouri, locked their supervisor in a bathroom before breaking a window and using tied-together blankets to escape the facility. There is no further public information regarding whether or not the 16- and 17-year-olds have been rearrested. On July 4th, in New Morgan, Pennsylvania, at the Abraxas Academy, a private youth detention facility, an incident that began as a fight between two teenage prisoners became what prison officials are calling a riot involving more than 50 teenage prisoners. 19 local police departments responded to the youth uprising, which lasted more than five hours. According to prison officials, the facility was significantly damaged, including the pipes, the fire alarms, and video surveillance system. Officials report that two teenage prisoners and one prison guard were treated for minor injuries. At around 3 a.m. on Friday, July 7th, two prisoners escaped the Bi-State Detention Facility in Texarkana, Arkansas. Allegedly, they escaped in street clothes from their fourth-floor cell in jail, but no information has been released on how they managed to get past staff or locked doors. The prisoners then broke through the cinder blocks, climbed a pipe, and knocked a hole through concrete to exit the jail from the second floor and then fled, 
As of August 1st, 2023, the two prisoners have yet to be recaptured. On July 14th, one prisoner escaped by cutting off her ankle bracelet from the Bridges of America work release program in Bradenton, Florida, with aid from another detainee. Allegedly, a co-worker and community center roommate helped cut off the monitor and threw it in the bushes of the restaurant they worked together as part of the work release program. The prisoner was recaptured on July 19th in Jacksonville, Florida. The co-worker was arrested for aiding an escape. On the morning of Sunday, July 23rd, three prisoners escaped the Warren County Community Correctional Center in Turtle Creek Township in Lebanon, Ohio. Allegedly, the three prisoners breached a window and then fled by foot from the facility. Two prisoners were recaptured by police shortly after the escape. The third prisoner was recaptured on July 27th in Middleton, Ohio. On the morning of Monday, July 24th, two prisoners escaped from the Carroll County Jail in Huntington, Tennessee. No information about their escape has been provided. Both prisoners were recaptured on Tuesday, July 25th in Jackson, Tennessee. Two teenage prisoners at the Golden Peak Youth Services Center on Lookout Mountain campus in Golden, Colorado, used a fire extinguisher as a weapon against guards and other youth prisoners. According to official internal documents from the facility, the prisoners sprayed guards, used the extinguisher and chairs to break multiple windows and exit signs, and then barricaded themselves in the upper quadrant while gathering glass to use glass as weapons. The standoff lasted for more than an hour before both teens were arrested by responding law enforcement personnel from the Golden Police Department and the Jefferson County Sheriff. The Colorado Department of Human Services reports that there were no injuries to staff or other prisoners. On the morning of Monday, July 24th, four prisoners escaped from Bend County Jail in Las Animas, Colorado. According to sheriff officials, the prisoners bunched up the sheets to make it look like they were still in bed, broke through the sheetrock ceiling of their cell, crawled through the attic, and escaped through the back of the jail. Two prisoners were recaptured on Monday in Las Animas, Colorado. Another prisoner was found deceased later on Monday in Pueblo, Colorado, allegedly due to an overdose. The fourth prisoner has yet to be recaptured as of August 1st, 2023. On the evening of Thursday, July 27th, two prisoners escaped from Macon County Jail in Oglethorpe, Georgia. According to sheriff officials, two prisoners climbed through the jail's air conditioner vent. Staff didn't realize the prisoners had escaped until the following day, 5.30 p.m. on Friday. One prisoner was recaptured in Columbus, Georgia on July 28th. The other prisoner has yet to be recaptured as of August 1st. At 8 p.m. on Friday, July 29th, 13 youth prisoners held at the Los Perdinos Juvenile Hall in Los Angeles, California, reportedly assaulted guards, escaped their units, freed prisoners from an adjacent unit, and attempted to escape by scaling the walls of the facility. According to Interim Probation Chief Guillermo Vieira Rosa, seven of the youth assaulted guards with pieces of broken furniture before exiting their unit. The youth prisoners broke the window of an adjacent unit from which six other youth prisoners joined them on the facility grounds in an attempted escape. Prison officials say that the event lasted several hours 
and multiple law enforcement agencies responded to quell the uprising. Probation department officials report the use of riot gear and a sheriff's helicopter. One 18-year-old managed to escape the prison grounds but was recaptured in a nearby golf course. According to officials, there were no serious injuries to the youth prisoners or prison guards involved. In today's feature report, local journalist Dave Askins of the B-Square Bulletin provides a report on musician Molly Tuttle's performance last week at Switchyard Park. This comes from the B-Square Bulletin's Morning Bulletin. Dave Askins has more. The B-Square Bulletin sends out an emailed Morning Bulletin every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You can sign up for the Morning Bulletin by visiting bsquarebulletin.com and clicking on the tab labeled Subscribe. Here's an entry from the edition that was sent on Friday, August 25th, 2023. The headline to this item is, Bloomington is all right, some people there will treat you fine. Molly Tuttle and her band Golden Highway performed at Switchyard Park on Thursday night. Her set was mostly her own songs, either from Crooked Tree, which was released last year and won the Grammy for Best Bluegrass Album, or City of Gold, which was released just a few weeks ago. Towards the end of the show, she performed the title track from Crooked Tree. She led into it by telling the crowd, I wrote this song thinking about growing up as a little kid and losing all my hair when I was three years old. I developed something called alopecia areata, which basically means your body stops growing hair. So it's been a lifetime of feeling like a crooked tree. I love wearing wigs. They're really fun. But you know, it's so hot out tonight, I thought I'd just let my hair down. Then she lifted off her wig and launched into the song. The chorus goes like this. Oh, can't you see? A crooked tree won't fit into the mill machine. They're left to grow wild and free. Oh, I'd rather be a crooked tree. She closed out the show with White Freightliner Blues, which is not a Molly Tuttle original. It was written by Towns Van Zandt. I'm glad she sang it because it's the first song I ever heard Molly Tuttle play. I was searching on YouTube for a cover version of that song that I thought my songwriter friend Chris Buhalis up in Ann Arbor, Michigan might have uploaded there. At the top of the pile of those search results was one of Molly Tuttle's renditions. She plays it faster and with way more notes than Town Van Zandt ever did. Towns sang it almost like a lament. For Molly Tuttle, it's more like a celebration. Anyhow, one line from the song, the way Towns sang it, goes like this. New Mexico ain't bad, Lord. People there will treat you fine. When Molly Tuttle plays it on tour, she swaps in for New Mexico, the name of the place where she's playing. So on Tuesday at Switchyard Park, here's what she sang. Bloomington's all right. Some people there will treat you fine. The crowd, of course, went wild. As for me, I was distracted by some details. But... I decided I'm not going to think too hard about the difference between all right and ain't bad. And I'm also not going to worry too much about 
some people compared to just people. All right, until next week, this has been Dave Askins with the B-Square Bulletin for WFHB. WFHB News is proud to partner with the Media School at Indiana University to offer internships and volunteer opportunities in broadcast journalism. Last month, the Media School hosted the High School Journalism Institute, drawing hundreds of students from all over the country to Bloomington for a week of intense workshops. WFHB hosted the podcasting workshop where students produced new episodes of Activate, our weekly feature spotlighting people for positive change in our community. Every Monday during the month of August, we've been showcasing their work. This week's episode was produced by Ellie Braskow. Ellie is a senior at Piedmont High School in Oakland, California. She produces her own podcast called Teens in the Bay and also enjoys playing tennis and guitar. You'll hear Ellie's voice in the intro to this week's episode of Activate. Featuring Kelly Schofield from the City of Bloomington Parks and Recreation Department, Kelly is an urban green space specialist bringing neighbors together to care for our parks and natural habitats. That's a new student-produced episode of Activate coming your way right now on WFHB Local News. Welcome to Activate, featuring real people working for positive change in our community. Encouraging you to get involved, live your passion, and make a difference. Hi, I'm Kelly Schofield, and I am with the Bloomington Parks and Recreation Urban Green Space Outreach Team. I'm a specialist who works with volunteers. Our team specifically aims to get the community involved with the parks and uh, our sustainability practices, so caring for the parks as a part of our ecosystem. In particular, we're dealing with invasive plant species, and a lot of those are plants that were brought to this continent from another continent, um, usually like Europe or Asia, um, where there's a similar climate, uh, and they've adapted really well. And we've either brought those for horticultural reasons or just because we think they look pretty, and so we're going to plant them in our yards and have beautiful yards because we've traveled abroad and we've seen their beautiful gardens and we're envious of them. Um, the problem is that when they are removed from their native habitat, you're also removing them from the ecosystem that keeps that plant in check in its home range, it serves a purpose, it, it's food for certain insects and birds and other animals, and here there's nothing that's eating it, and so um, they kind of just spread everywhere. And the problem is with that is that it crowds out the things that do feed our insects and our birds and our mammals, um, and so they start running out of food. Um, there's also a lot of studies out there linking um, increases of invasive plants to um, economic loss, whether that's crops or property damage, um, soil erosion. Uh, they've increased the amount of disease vectors like ticks um, 
and rodents that uh, have skyrocketing populations. Um, so those are some of the, the unforeseen side effects of bringing in plants that don't belong here. I started as a volunteer, actually. Um, I happened to see a volunteer um, weed wrangle event at Bryan Park um, one spring and decided that I wanted to do that too. So I ended up signing up and volunteering for about a year uh, before an opportunity to become staff became available. So I took that this spring. It's really inspired me to get to know people um, around me a lot more. It's really easy to move to a town and just do your job and go home and not interact with people um, or just interact with people that maybe have um, similar interests or in a similar age group. Um, but when you do volunteering, you meet people that do have similarities to you, but they might come from like completely different backgrounds and different age groups and different careers. So it's a really great way to meet people you wouldn't normally meet. So we post all of our volunteer opportunities on the Bloomington um, Parks and Rec website. So you can go there and find a link to sign up. Um, we have activities uh, Monday through Saturday. Um, our Saturdays tend to be our most popular events because people have free time. Um, you can also get involved in the um, Adopt a Green Space program where you would pick um, maybe the park that's closest to you and you use it a lot and so you really care about that park and then you become like the ambassador for that park. You regularly take care of it on your own time. You don't have to wait for us to have an event there. We would love for you to get involved with our weed wrangles um, any day of the week. Uh, you can sign up at bloomington.in.gov slash parks. bloomington.in.gov slash parks. Again, I'm Kelly Schofield with the Bloomington Urban Green Space Outreach Team, and we invite you to get your wrangle on. You've been listening to Activate, true stories from friends and neighbors who stand up for what they believe in. Activate is a partnership between WFHB and the City of Bloomington Volunteer Network, working together to build a strong, healthy, and engaged community. With production support from students in the media school at Indiana University, you can learn more about volunteer opportunities in the WFHB listening area online at bloomingtonvolunteernetwork.org. That's bloomingtonvolunteernetwork.org.